Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke chapter 20? We finish out Luke 20 today, verses 45 through 47. I'm calling the message from this text, Religious Fraud. Christ is two, two days from the cross here. We've been studying together here in this portion of Luke, his rapid and very important teaching to those who were around him. Again, remember, by this time in the history of the Jews, they had been flipped on their heads theologically totally ignoring the Old Testament teaching of the importance of the suffering Messiah. He must first come as a suffering servant. Moving right past that, they only concentrated on the Messiah of the glorious return, the glorious King establishing the kingdom. And so many were expecting Jesus to do that very thing. And of course, Christ's purpose here, as has been his purpose all along for these three years, is to teach people uh, the proper context of the prophecies of Messiah, the, the fallacy of self-righteousness, which had been perpetuated by the Pharisees and Judaism in general, and to reveal to the people that God is a God of grace and that we can only be saved through the designated Savior, the Son of God. So, this teaching intensifies here in this, these last few days of Christ's ministry on earth before His crucifixion. We've already seen that... Uh, he has, with his answers to their questions, Christ has already frustrated and silenced the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the elders, the scribes. But now he's beginning to move away from teaching publicly and moving more toward teaching his disciples intensely things really that they won't understand until after his resurrection and even then, some of those things they won't get a grasp of until he has that post-resurrection, pre-ascension time with them to teach them and to open their eyes to the law and the prophets. So Christ's turn is now. He asked, you saw last time, he said, now let me ask you a question. And Christ has taken the position that he is the Messiah. And properly so, the Messiah must first suffer. Christ, of course, has been predicting his suffering and crucifixion for quite some time, not just, not just here in these last days of his life, physically on earth. Religious fraud. Let's look at the text together. Now, all the people were listening. He said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes 
Now the scribes were Pharisees, but they were experts in the law. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but all scribes were Pharisees. The scribes were the ones who would copy the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the law, prophets, the scriptures. It was a tedious task and they had to wear, according to their tradition, they had to wear certain clothing, use a certain kind of stylus and use certain kind of ink and write on a certain type of paper and had to space, the letters had to be the right size and they had to space the letters perfectly and each line had to end on the proper line and they would begin the next line like they were supposed to. This was very tedious work and it took quite a while for scribes to, to copy even just one book of the Old Testament. If inadvertently some of the ink splashed, speckled, or there was a smudge of any kind, regardless of how far along he was in his work, he had to tear it and burn it up and destroy that work and start all over again. It had to be meticulously correct. There could not be anything that would differentiate it from that which was being copied. And, I, and in that sense, we owe them a great debt. The accurate copy of the Word of God that's been handed down. So these scribes became lawyers. They were the ones who copied the law all the time. They pretty much had it committed to memory. In the course of time, they became experts at the law. Now, understand when I say the law as it was spoken of in the day of Christ here, it wasn't just the law of Moses. There also was the law of traditions, the law of the traditions of men. It became a writing unto itself, a writing which Christ had condemned that the Pharisees were accepting as Scripture, the traditions of men, and they were. But the scribes also made copies of that and had committed those traditions to memory as well. They became known as lawyers. And as lawyers, when people had to have a particular question answered to be sure that they were right in some kind of transaction, or perhaps when there was a disagreement among people, they would seek the service and counsel of a scribe slash lawyer. So these are the ones Christ is referencing here in this portion of Luke. Now in the parallel scripture in Matthew, it's a, length, it's a lengthier condemnation of Christ. And he also mentions the Pharisees and that's where he calls them whited sepulchers. They look real good and clean and pretty on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. He had, they were, they were like, uh, he called them snakes and a brood of vipers. He was <laughs> rather severe in his condemnation of these people. This is a more condensed version in Luke of what Christ was saying to them. Beware of the scribes. These guys are not going to do you any good. They're religious frauds. They're going to mislead you and they're going to cause great suffering and condemnation even unto damnation. 
you have to be careful not to follow a false teacher. False teachers. The, the church has suffered with this. You know, there's an, there's an easy uh, there's an easy cure for false teachers. And it's just simply this. Read the Word of God. Believe the Word of God. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything out of it. Take it like it is. Do your best to obey it. Trust the Lord. His Word is alive. Now, only people with the Holy Spirit of God today in the church understand that and really understand the Scriptures. People who are dead spiritually can't get anything out of the Bible. That's just the plain truth. They look at it as a historical document or prose or poetry or whatever. Nice little, nice little stories and myths. They don't see it and understand it as a book that is alive, that bears witness with the spirit of the born-again person. These scribes had relegated the Word of God, the real Word of the Torah. They had relegated that to being equivalent to the wisdom of men by accepting and teaching as law the traditions of men. So it's a man-made thing. Now Christ says, beware of these people. Beware of the scribes. Now he gives several reasons here why they should, they should watch after themselves regarding false teachers. I want to take a minute and read an excerpt from a book and excerpts from a couple of articles uh, that I just put down here because I think what Christ says here is relevant to our day, of course, and we see the relevancy of it when we, when we consider what, uh, what has been written in these books and articles. Now this part of this because I was doing it for my own self, I didn't document it. I just know where it came from and you can look at it and read it for yourself. But uh, the first one or some of this comes from a, a book by, uh, by John MacArthur called The Truth War. And then some of it comes from articles that are written about a certain liberal Baptist preacher way back at the, in the early 1900s. So let me, let me read. This is all quote, these are all quotes here. There is a movement that is exploding on the scene, especially in the United States today, called the Emergent Church Movement. The Emerging Church. Quote, The mark of this movement is a rejection of doctrinal certainty, scriptural clarity, gospel exclusivity. It is neoliberalism. It's just the old liberalism that destroyed the major denominations of this country. The old higher critical theory, it's the old liberalism back in a new dress. All for the sake of camaraderie, collegiality, tolerance with those who do not believe the gospel and who do not even believe Christianity as an exclusive and true religion. Within this movement, there are constant calls for respect, tolerance, and diversity. A buzzword to define what marks the movement of the emerging church is the word, quote, conversation, close quote. 
One of the leaders of old liberalism, now this is from another article, was a man by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. In 1928, Fosdick, he was a liberal, said this, quote, Many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from Scripture and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending the church that morning are deeply concerned about what the passage means, they spend their half hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter, ending with some appended practical application to the auditors. Could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? Now see, that's what I do. So it's filled with dullness and futility. <laughs> I'm just sorry. No, I'm not. Who seriously supposes that as a matter of fact, one in 100 of the congregation cares to start with what Moses, Isaiah, Paul, or John meant in those special verses or come to church deeply concerned about it? Nobody else who talks to the public so assumes that the vital interest of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago. So this guy Fosdick, he makes a prophecy. It's 1928. The future, now this is Fosdick. The future belongs to a type of sermon which can be best described as an adventure in cooperative thinking. Conversation or adventure, cooperative thinking uh, are the words that he used here as key words. Now, going to another article, Doug Paget, I think is his name, 2005. Doug Paget, he is a leader of the emerging church movement. This is a quote from him. Our sermons are not lessons that precisely define belief uh, so much as they are stories that welcome our hopes and ideas and participation. So let's have a conversation. All right. So he says here, uh, to move along here, no more dogmatism, set aside condemnation, for those who believe in another way, in light and in view of and in favor of conversation. Now, another guy, Brian McLaren, one of the leading, if not the leading writer in the emerging movement, has a new book called The, <laughs> the Secret Message of Jesus. I'm so glad to have found it. <laughs> but this guy reveals his message. He says in The Secret Message of Jesus, quote, in an age of global terrorism and rising religious conflict, it is significant to note that all Muslims regard Jesus as a great prophet, that many Hindus are willing to consider Jesus as a legitimate manifestation of the divine, that many Buddhists see Jesus as one of humanity's most enlightened people, and that Jesus himself was a Jew. Continuing his quote, isn't that great? We are all like Jesus. We all like him. So let's start the conversation. He continues. 
A shared reappraisal of Jesus' message could provide a unique space or common ground for urgently needed religious dialogue. And it doesn't seem an exaggeration to say that the future of our planet may depend on such dialogue. So don't condemn. Let's see, brood of vipers, rotted graves. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like somebody seeking a conversation to me. That's Jesus. To move on, just to look down here, and I'll get to it, but just to make it to, these will receive more abundant condemnation. Why? Because they're religious and wrong. They have rejected the Christ of God, the exclusivity of the gospel, that they proclaim there are more than one way, more than one way to be saved. Well, let me see. I'm not quite angry enough yet, so... Okay, I knew there was some other guy. Tony Campolo. He's a prominent advocate of the emerging church movement. Here's what he says. These are quotes from him. To quote him, I think that what we all have to do is leave judgment up to God. What Muslims will do, will, what Muslims will not do is condemn Jews and Christians to hell if, in fact, they do not accept Islam. Islam is, a much, more gracious, is much more gracious toward evangelical Christians who are faithful to the New Testament than Christians are toward Islamic people who are faithful to the Koran. So they're better than we are. Now, and uh, he, I, he hadn't been reading the Bible. Let's see. To quote him, continue. Muhammad was very understanding that there was great truth in Christianity. He differed with us in that he felt he had a more complete truth and Islam would hold to that. But Muhammad continued that we would ultimately be judged in terms of the truth that we had at our disposal. And that we are Muslim brothers and sisters willing to say that we must live up to the truth as we understand it. If I will live up to the truth as I understand it, I'll leave it all up to God on judgment day. I have to believe that Jesus is not looking only for Christians. He continues. Our Muslim brothers and sisters can say Islam is the only true faith, but we're not convinced that only Muslims enjoy salvation. I'm not convinced that the grace of God doesn't go farther than the Christian community. <laughs> so, the grace of God goes beyond Christianity. There is so much goodness in the Islamic community, it cannot be ignored. It seems to me that we that when we listen to the Muslim mystics as they talk about Jesus and their love for Jesus, I must say it's a lot closer to New Testament Christianity than a lot of Christians are. 
Well, I'm pretty mad now. I'm not going to read anymore. So, this is, let me give that to you and you can set fire to it. Yeah. Um, we live in an era as Christians always have. But it's so particularly dangerous. We live in an era of false teachers. The emergent church movement. Where rather than proclaiming the exclusive gospel of Christ and the glorious wonders of Jesus and his eternal life to give in heaven for us and a hell to escape, rather than preaching the gospel message, the thrust is to sit down and have a conversation. And let's just all rejoice in where we agree. This is the very thing here that Christ is condemning. Beware of the scribes. Number one, desiring to walk in long robes. Let me have that thing. This is my doctoral robe. I'm going to tell you some things about it. I didn't know this really until I, you have to walk through a graduate line or then you teach. I've taught in college and I had to be there for the graduation. And I learned that there's a hierarchy in this thing. Okay. And it's written in your robe. Okay. So you have this robe. The royal blue is Ph.D. If it was a THD or a D-min, it'd be red. If it was a DBA, it'd be khaki brown. There are colors for different, uh, Juris Doctor is a different color. Medical Doctor is a different color. But I learned that PhD is the highest of academic degrees. So, line starts here. The cordage means something. The three stripes means doctorate. The hood means something. The colors on the inside of the hood mean something. I'm going to get into all that. This is my favorite part right here. <laughs> I know you'd enjoy me up here every Sunday preaching in this thing, right? The... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that cost me a lot of money too. Listen, there are people who this hierarchy stuff is very, it's important to them. False teachers are the same way. They demand your respect. They don't wear the same kinds of long robes, maybe, that they wore in the day of Jesus. But they still they still afford to themselves a special designation that you must respect. Long robes. So that's not one sign of a false teacher. Number two, loving greetings in the marketplaces. <laughs> we had a 
I'm not going to call his name. He's probably dead anyway. He was so old then. We were in Key West. Pat's about to faint because she thinks I'm... <laughs> and people are watching. We were in Key West. <clears throat> we had this wonderful group of people who came down every year. Campers on mission. We had 12 at our church. And our church was huge. It was a large, a whole city block. We had 12 campsites. Full hookups from sewer to cable vision. And sometimes it was hard to tell which was which, I guess. <clears throat> but had everything there for them. And they would come down December, maybe November, December. Some of them would stay all the way till Easter. They did all of our our, our maintenance. They, they did the painting. They built a building for us once. Uh, part of an, a wing to an education building. They did all of our repairs. We would buy the equipment and they would provide. They were, they were retired professionals. They knew what they were doing. And so they would set up their motor homes or their campers. And we had a couple of guys that would be there to sort of tell them what we wanted done. And they, they would work till about three o'clock, and then they were to go and enjoy the island and all that it offered. Had one guy, he was a retired preacher. And he just, he was just, man, was he a sourpuss. He just couldn't enjoy anything. Like the guy, you know, he said he looked like he was born on the dark side of the moon and and weaned on a dill pickle and baptized in vinegar. He's kind of one of those people. Well, the guy had a PhD. Like, who cares? And let's just say his name was John Doe. I'm pretty sure that wasn't his real name. But to protect the innocent. People were very, it was a, it was a, Camaraderie. You know, they just enjoyed each other's company. Go out and do things in the afternoon together, and eat at these real nice restaurants, and go see the stuff down there in Key West. They casually would think that he was like the rest of everybody. They called him John. You remember that guy? They called him John. That might not have been his first name, but that's what we're going to call him. And. He was angry, and his anger built because men, women, and children were calling him John. John, let's go out to eat. John, what you doing this afternoon? John, would you pass me the paint bucket? John, would you mind helping me over here with a hammer and nails? Finally, he just exploded. And he brought all these people up to my office. See, now there I was, hiding in a dark room by myself, and I didn't have a dog in that fight, and I'm about to get drug into it. And this old guy went on this tirade about all of the education that he had and the work that he had done, and he insisted that people call him Dr. Doe instead of John. I thought the guy was kidding, and I laughed. But then I saw the tears in his eyes and the redness of his face. And I thought, I hope he don't have a gun on him. And these other guys that were part of the campers on mission, 
I'd say six or seven of those campsites were the same people every year probably. And we'd have some that would come and go. I could tell by the look on everybody's face that this guy wasn't kidding. He would be called Dr. Doe or he was going to leave. I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, he asked me, didn't I insist on being called Dr. Owens? I said, no. <laughs> you know, if people know too much about you, they'll expect too much out of you. So you just. <laughs> I said, no. I said, they can call me anything they want to. Well, within, within Christian reason. Because <laughs> I, you know, as a, as a preacher for over 40 years, I've been called everything. And it's better when it's a little on the nicer side. Well, he was very offended. And he and his wife, he's just his wife and he, he and his wife, they packed up their camper and went home that afternoon. They left. Because he didn't get the right greeting in the marketplace. Love to have, they loved the title rabbi. If you study the, the history of the, they loved that title. All that was meaningful. If you said rabbi to somebody, that was like, that was like Quachang Cain lifting his arms and you see those things burned into his arms. Nobody knows who that is. Kung Fu guy. Whenever the Chinese saw him, you know, they would all bow down because he was a Buddhist monk. Well, anyway, when they heard the term rabbi, that meant that they would, they would receive the abeyance of people. And they especially liked it in the marketplaces because everybody there could see and they could remember whenever they saw him somewhere else. Hey, that's, that's rabbi so-and-so. Number three, the first seats in the synagogues. We've seen it already in, in Luke, and of course it's in the other Gospels, how when these people walked into a synagogue or a, a banquet, number four, they naturally expected the best seat. We studied one in Luke a few chapters back, you may recall, where the, the implication was that some of them were expecting to be seated a little closer to the host, and they, they weren't. They were kind of like secondary special, you know, and they didn't like it. This was very important to them that they would be, that they would be recognized and be seen as important. Indication of false teacher. They devour the houses of widows. Now, this is literal when it comes to houses. These guys were lawyers. And I studied the history of this, why, why Christ said it this way. The widows were the most defenseless of people, and they needed the most help in attending to affairs. So a scribe slash lawyer would hook them. And he would take advantage of them with free room and board and, and things like that. 
then he would begin to build his bills that he was charging her. Every time she asked a question, it went down on the, you know, it went, it went down on the paper. So there comes a time on into the relationship of client and lawyer that the lawyer finally says, dear sister, I've been avoiding this, but I cannot avoid it anymore. You owe me. And he would present this exorbitant amount that she could not pay. And she had to sign an agreement early in their relationship that he had the right to collect, even if it meant taking her house. So these guys would trick these widows, these defenseless widows, into building up a big bill, legal bill, until finally they couldn't do anything about it and had to turn their house over to the lawyer. False teachers. Send me a thousand, God will give you ten thousand. Pay off my car, God will pay off your house. I've heard these things. I have, I have prayed over this cloth. Send me $25 and this prayer that is trapped in this cloth will explode into your face and into your mind. <laughs> You've probably seen those things. Okay, well there it is. Devour the houses of widows and as a pretext, okay a pretext, that's a good Greek word up there, uh, profase, profase. It means I'm going to pretend and make myself look like something that I'm not. Pretext, pretense. So pretending to have a special connection to God, number seven, they would pray at long duration. Long prayer. When I was growing up, my daddy was pastor. He, I was nine, ten years old at the time. This retired preacher started coming to our church. He was a, he was a, a dashing figure of a man. And he told my daddy, he said, anytime you want me to pray, I love to pray. Well, daddy called on him one time to pray the benediction. This guy started with his hands up and his face looked up. Oh, and he started calling God all kinds of biblical names. And he prayed in the King James language, thee and thou and thus. And then sometimes he would get kind of quiet and he would drop a little bit. And then I was peeking one eye. I was watching this guy. <laughs> then he clasped his hands and began to tremble a little bit. And then he got down on his knees and prayed some more. This went on for like 
I don't know, way past lunchtime. <laughs> and he began to stand up. I mean, listen, this guy went from the earth to the moon. Thank you for the moon. Thank you for the Mars. Your glorious handiwork. We didn't name the constellations. And that was a, it was a history lesson and a science lesson. I don't know what all it was. <laughs> I, had a, I had a watch, a little Timex watch, and I'd time this guy. He came to our church again a few months later, and Daddy called him. Daddy called on him to pray. So I looked at my watch. Me and my cousin were wondering, is he going to beat his record, his last record? Is he going to pray longer this time than he did that time? I don't mean to make fun of this guy. But what I do say is, <clears throat> I'm not sure, I'm not sure the food was blessed or I was blessed or anything. It was just a trip around the universe and through the history book and up and down and up and down until finally he was done. And it took a long time. It took a long time. Well, I was nine years old then. That was... 60, 59 years ago. Good grief, that guy'd be a hundred and something years old now. He may have been the sweetest guy in the world. But when I started preaching, my daddy told me, you don't have to say everything you know in one sermon. <laughs> Leave some of it for the next time you preach. And he explained to me that people had limited bladder time and some people had to take pills with lunch food and all this kind of thing. So I tried to watch out for that. But this guy never got that memo. Uh, the point being, we should be as sincere as possible and connected to the moment as we can be. Straightforward in our teaching and never vary from the blessed holy truth of Scripture. Never apologize for it. Never back away from it. And don't dodge any piece of it. And we'll grow. And we'll begin to learn how to detect false teachers when we see them. Here's the scary thing, finally. These will receive more abundant Condemnation. You know why? Because they were religious. Let me tell you something. If you're in the wrong religion, you're in for worse trouble than a lot of other people are. If you're looking for a conversation rather than seeking the absolute truth of the Word of God, you're in for a greater condemnation. Hell is hotter for some than it is for others. Christ said so. Christ himself condemned Tyre and Sidon to a hotter place in hell than he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Religious fraud. We just Stick to the Bible. Stick to it. Word for word, 
verse for verse, chapter for chapter, book for book, it will speak to us. We go through it again, it will speak to us in another and deeper way. And we keep doing this, and this is how we grow in the Lord and how we can evolve and how we can evade and escape from false religion. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He came into this world to save sinners. According to the Word of God, if you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and call on Him to save you. He'll save you because his word says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We'll stand up in a minute and sing our song of invitation. If you would come to Christ today, just step out, come to me. Let me rejoice in the moment with you and pray with you. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. If that's what God wants, you come and share that with me and we'll take care of all of the details of church membership. Father in heaven, now bless us in this moment. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?